Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amaphidon. Thanks for tuning in. In the city this week, love was in the air. Take a look at what couples are up to on Newberry Street. Holding hands with someone is nice on any day, but it felt sweeter on Tuesday, probably because it was Valentine's Day. However you choose to express your feelings, be it flowers, cards, or candy, there's no denying the poll of February 14th. BNN News ventured to Newberry Street to check in on several couples marking the occasion. And how are the two of you celebrating Valentine's today? Um, Devin actually took me to Contessa for breakfast, which is really exciting. I'd been wanting to go there for a long time. Um, and we are just going to get some dinner tonight, just spend some time together. We don't celebrate too hard. It's just kind of like uh, acknowledging each other, saying like one or two nice things and getting a coffee together. We tend to save our celebration for the anniversary. We are going to travel to New York, so having dinner and that satisfy you. <laughs> the ways we celebrate our love are as diverse as the encounters that began them. Would you mind sharing the story how the two of you met? Um, yeah, we actually met in a Zoom class um, when... In October 2020. Yeah, yeah. So we met in a class, um, and then we talked for a while, and then met up in person when we were able to attend school in person. We met in college. <laughs> it's been a few years, actually 53 years 53, ago. 53, <laughs> the University of Virginia, and uh, we had a blind date. <laughs> we did, back in the day when you did that we met through his ex. Yeah, we were, um, she was her roommate at the time and um, we were looking for new places to live and lease and stuff and she introduced me to her and we leased a place together and then... One thing led to another. <laughs> four years later, yeah. According to Hallmark, Americans exchange 145 million greeting cards every Valentine's Day. But that pales in comparison to the $1 billion we spend on chocolate. For Juliana Hull of Winston's Flowers, Valentine's Day is the florist's biggest day, aside from Christmas and Mother's Day. It's funny that it happens right after Super Bowl Sunday because this is our Super Bowl. Um, it's the busiest day of the year. It's always a little chaotic, but in a very good way. Um, lots of love, lots of fun times, and we always get to interact with a lot of really lovely people. We've grown roses for thousands and thousands of years. We can't get away from them. We love them so much. And a rose has a different meaning to every person. I look at red and, you know, we all think of love. But you can also think of anniversaries and you can think of newborn babies. And I think of sweet pea and I always think of my aunt who grew it in her garden for over a dozen years. And it's just everyone can look at a flower and see something different. And I think that's what makes them so special is that a rose can hold a meaning to so many different people. At the end of the day, the core of the holiday is appreciation. Of all our blessings, love is the greatest one. And yeah. I'll tell you what, I, uh, I've had a lucky career. I've run a whole bunch of companies and I was speaking to about 800 CEOs and some fellow said, Dick, what do you feel best about in your career? And I didn't even think about it, but I just said, I feel best about my marriage. And if you guys are thinking about your bank account and how much money you're going to make, you're going to miss the best part of your life. For the first time in Boston, black women, state legislators, and allies came together to spread awareness of the many health disparities African-American women face in the U.S. healthcare system. 
women's health is an issue that is very dear, of course, to me because I'm a woman, but it's an issue that is of concern across the Commonwealth. On Monday, women from across the Commonwealth gathered at the State House to discuss disparities in healthcare accessibility for black women. The first annual Black Women's Health and Wellness Legislative Advocacy Day centered the experience of many black women who have felt underserved by the healthcare industry. It's unfair that we have to think every day about our health and our ability to live a full life. Our life expectancy should not be any lower than someone else because of lack of health care, because of a lack of resources, and a low expectancy of life for us as black women also has a great impact on our children, a great impact on our families, and a great impact on our communities overall. Through interactive panel discussions, attendees engaged in the complexities of health care equity and the need for federal government to address the systemic racism that endangers the lives of so many black women. Sadly, the commentary around issues of health equity and those gaps are something that are systemic. Uh, they're nationwide. Sadly, they're even global. That depending on not only just one's skin color, but their ethnic cultural backgrounds, actually has some kind of level of dictation, the kind of care that you receive, if you have care at all. We cannot just be at the local level changing one thing at a time. We must do this in ways that are calling to account the historical, the social historical issues of racism, sexism, and all the other areas of disparities in order to make this change happen. Unfortunately, this nation was built on racism and the color of our skin, but we need to move along. We need to process these, these wrongs that were done, and we need to heal as a nation. And that means providing equality across the board, whether it means in the workplace, whether it means in healthcare, whether it means in housing, we all deserve equality. Black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women. According to the CDC, they have higher rates of death for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes than any other group of women. Mistrust in the healthcare field runs deep, partially due to low representation of medical professionals of color. Despite composing 11.6% of the U.S. population, only 5.6% of doctors are black women. Black and brown people just don't go to the doctor. They don't trust the system. They don't feel like they're going to get any good outcome. And when they do show up, they're treated like a second-class citizen. Uh, they've been told, I've been had cases of individuals going to a doctor and they might have a broken wrist or a broken ankle and they give them pain pills and send them home saying you're all right, there's nothing wrong with you. So that's very important. So because of the lack of trust in the healthcare system and the treatment that black and brown people obtain when they go to a doctor, you know what they say? The hell with it. I just won't go. I'll take my chances. As lawmakers realize the importance of working hand-in-hand -hand with medical professionals and the community in improving the health outcomes of black women, we must prioritize the behavioral mental health of black women in their journey towards wholeness. Boston's homeless population is often forgotten, ignored, and neglected by the state. Over in Copley Square, thousands showed up for the seventh annual Winter Walk to End Homelessness, and their advocacy is the first step to finding a solution. Homelessness is not something that just happened to bad people. And we need to work together to try to figure this out because everybody deserves a home. 
On Sunday, over 3,000 people heard this message and took to the streets of Boston to uplift the homeless population in the city. Both those experiencing homelessness and advocates to end the crisis believe ending homelessness is well within our reach. Every day that people are homeless in Boston is a stain on our society. It's just, it's not, you know, compatible with human dignity to not have somewhere to sleep at night. And the reality is we can end homelessness. You know, the city's already taken steps to end veteran homelessness. We've got a plan to end youth homelessness. We've just, we've got to say that nothing's acceptable until everybody is housed. It's just a basic, basic human right. For the seventh year in a row, participants braved winter weather to spread awareness, walking to find and fund a solution. If we can drop the stigma around homelessness and the negativity associated with it, then maybe, just maybe, we can find the actual funds that are available somewhere to provide the basic necessity of homes for everybody. From all walks of life, participants came, sharing stories of their lived experiences as they walked in solidarity. Their stories touched on hardship and the need for more empathy for those without a roof over their heads. Everybody looks at it as, it's not my problem. That's, that's their problem. They didn't do what they need to do, but that's not true. Nobody wakes up in the morning saying, I want to be homeless today. I want to be homeless tonight. Um, and no, just like no one wakes up and say, I want to be a drug addict or, or anything of that nature. So I just want people to realize that the people that are walking the streets at night, they are not strangers. They're more your brothers and your sisters and your neighbors because you know, we just we just want a place, to, a warm, safe place to stay to call our own. It's hard to be out there because you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. You don't know if you're going to be able to, if, even if there's a shelter, you don't know if the shelter is going to have a bed for you or not. 100% of the funds raised in Sunday's Winter Walk go directly to homeless service organizations to provide prevention, support, and care for the homeless communities of Boston. They hope to create a world where homelessness is no longer an epidemic, and everyone has the help he needs to support himself moving forward. Over in Charlestown, Little Voices sang This Little Light of Mine in honor of Black History Month. and their light was shining bright at the Warren Prescott School. The young K-8 scholars celebrated Black History Month with musical performances as they were joined by city and state leadership. And all were in agreement that Black history is American history. It's so clear this is American history. And so this is our chance to be able to look around and to see every day in our world the impact that black culture, black art, uh, black intellect, black creativity has on our lives, making us just a better society. We need to be honest about our past, the good and the ugly parts, in order for us not only to shape a better future, but to truly bring about those people and those lives and those inspirations uh, to help our young people know that they come from incredible, incredible history, that they come from incredibly intelligent, hardworking, resilient individuals. So this is a, a month of inspiration. This is a month of historical lessons and a month of healing. And it is American History Month. 
During the February school vacation from the 18th through 24th, COVID vaccines are available at free clinics as part of the Mass Department of Public Health's Equity Initiative. Clinics will offer a gift card to everyone ages six months and older who receives a vaccination or booster while supplies last. No insurance, no health ID, no problem, as they're not required. For questions or help finding a clinic, you can call 211 or toll-free number 877 211-6277. All locations and dates are available at mass.gov forward slash get boosted. While visiting the African Community Economic Development of New England in Jamaica Plain, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley announced the huge stride she made for black, brown, and African communities of Boston by securing massive federal funding for small business in need of economic support. Presley and other city leaders gathered with small business owners for a roundtable discussion and press conference highlighting how funding will support an equitable pandemic recovery for small businesses. 15 community projects across the Commonwealth will benefit from the funding that will tackle a wide range of issues from health care to child care to education. To learn more about Presley's community project funding, presley.house.gov forward slash community dash project dash funding. Across Boston, neighborhood signs greet residents and visitors on their travels throughout our diverse city. Mayor Michelle Wu has recently announced the Neighborhood Redesign Program to reimagine these signs. Artists 18 years or older must live or work in the city of Boston to participate, and selected artists will receive a stipend for their work. The creation should align with the curatorial vision of Boston, reflecting people, ideas, histories, and futures of the city, as well as pay tribute to the Wampanoag and Nipmuc peoples. To learn more about submissions, boston.gov forward slash sign dash redesign. Still to come, we dive into the sounds of chamber music of the diaspora with Castle of Our Skins Artistic and Executive Director, Ashley Gordon. You know, anybody can become homeless. Homelessness is not a prison sentence. Homelessness is something that happened to people because of circumstances. You can lose your job and become homeless. You know, you can lose, lose your car, lose your house, you know, lose your marriage. Many ways that you can become homeless. Of course, it was in the wintertime when we came up here and uh, it was almost a foot to two and a half feet of snow on the ground. And my wife wasn't doing that well because she, at the time she needed an ankle um, operation. I told her, I said, look, I said, we got to find somewhere to stay. So I said, call the uh, shelters and see what you can find. Boston, they don't have shelters for husbands and wives. They have shelters for single people, women and children, but not for husbands and wives, which I thought was sort of odd because if, if you're a family, you're a family, you know? In 27 years, we had never been separated before, never. So to actually, to be in a women's shelter, which is even though it's only two blocks from like the men's shelter, it was like, where's my other arm? I had never been homeless. So to, to be homeless was, to my cultural shock, it was, it was shock period. You give up after a while. You've been beat down so much, you're totally you can't sit here, you can't sleep here, you can't eat here. You have to keep going. It, it just beats you down after a time. 
in the end, what it did for us is it taught us how to take care of ourselves. Living in a homeless shelter is not for the faint of heart. I, I've never seen nothing like it. I hope never again see anything like it. But uh, living living in a homeless shelter takes a takes a certain kind of person because everybody can't do that and survive. I want to see representation in the people who make all the decisions of people who, like me and him, have gone through this. And so I would like to see more diversity, more people going into the communities. It's everybody's problem. Um, homelessness is not something that just happened to bad people. And we need to work together to try to figure this out because everybody deserves a home. Makes you know there's giving us keys and they opened up the door and he went in and, and he said, we actually have a place. We were so grateful to be have our own place, to be out of the shelter. We could finally breathe and we could finally be together again. Now we've been in our apartment now for three years. Welcome back. Ashley Gordon is a renowned violist with impressive musical performance experience, ranging from chamber and orchestral music settings to off-Broadway and new music productions. She's also known for her skilled instrumentals in Boston-based Castle of Our Skins. So Castle of Our Skins is celebrating its 10-year anniversary and it's releasing its debut album, Homage. Can you share what originally brought the group together in 2013 and what was the process of creating the album with UK pianist and historian Dr. Samantha Eke? Yes, so uh, 10 years is certainly something to celebrate and we're definitely doing that this year. Uh, we is very uh, important with Castle of Our Skins being a community, being a collective, being uh, I am because we are type of an organization. And it started um, pretty humbly with myself and fellow co-founder Anthony R. Green, who was a classmate of mine when I was at the New England Conservatory of Music. I say we're alphabetical buddies because my last name is Gordon, his is Green, and we were literally sitting next to each other in graduation. In any case, um, a fellow black musician predating when there were black student unions in most colleges and conservatories and music schools now. So very much finding community with each other, appreciation for each other's craft and artistry, mm. um, an interest 10 years ago beyond school wanting to still support one another, thinking rather naively since in our uh, multiple degrees we hadn't come across other musicians, uh, other composers who looked like us thinking, well, perhaps there's, there's more out there. And of course, there's 500 centuries worth, multiple continents um, of creative expression within what we studied, which was classical music. Mm. So very, very humbly as a way to support each other and provide a platform for ultimately us and others, others like us, um, very much to do so in Boston, which is a space that is proud of its history Mm -hmm. A space that has had so many black artists and creatives of all genres, especially, well, including ours, our classical genre, come and, and sell out Symphony Hall, um, perform at the same stage where we studied in New England Conservatory and had an active life here. So for us to be able to highlight their experience and be an extension of their experience is very much something that inspired the creation of Castle of Our Skins. And through that um, interest of, of building community and platform and support, definitely came across Samantha Ege, who lives in, in England, in the UK, 
through common research, common work, mm. and again, shared appreciation of each other. And similarly, naively, let's maybe do something together. Let's do a concert. How about an album? And the next thing you know, we have, we have a release. And a collaboration. And the album homage, it illuminates the works of five neglected classical composers of the diaspora. What specifically about these composers and their music stood out to you? So, so much about the composers on this album relates to a central understanding of shared experiences, of shared inspiration, and of culture. So Samuel Corge Taylor, for instance, Afro-British composer, lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, was part of the Pan-African movement, and there was a convention in London that he went to in 1900 that had uh, Booker T. Washington there, that had Paul Lawrence Dunbar there, that had African-American spirituals, that had ideas of around, uh, around um, how do we create a, a black identity post-reconstruction. And being so inspired as an Afro-British person who didn't necessarily have that immediate black identity formation crisis um, to deal with, but was very much drawn to it. So Samuel Corge Taylor is on here. Um, uh, Frederick C. Tillis, who taught at University of Amherst, UMass Amherst, <clears throat> passed away only a few years ago. His spiritual fantasy number 12 is one of dozens of spiritual fantasies that he's written because spirituals, again, being this connective thread, very specific but also very universal, something that Samuel Corge Taylor was very inspired by, is also on here. Uh, Zenobia Powell Perry, her piece, solo piano piece called Homage, just in honor of all sorts, right? Mm -hmm. Culture, history, people, stories, etc. And then speaking of stories, um, Dr. Mongani Nudana Breen and Undine Smith-Moore having stories, very specific stories about apartheid, about um, liberation, about freedom, about struggle, which is also part of the shared cultural narrative in this, in this album. And speaking of the stories, a um, few of those tracks, as you mentioned, uh, the tell stories of the apartheid in South Africa. It also touches on a little bit of the history in America on the Jim Crow era. What comes to your mind reflecting on these difficult times uh, faced by people of the diaspora during Black History Month? Yes, yeah, so we have um, a creative in residence with us who's a poet. Her name is Angel C. Dye. And with her, we curated a program that involved music, it involved um, history, and certainly a collection of poems. And she introduced me to a poem by Lucille Clifton. And the poem, very small excerpt of the poem, basically says, come, won't you celebrate with me? Because every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Hmm. And that comes immediately to my mind when thinking about apartheid, Jim Crow, prison industrial systems, injustices, Black Lives Matter, police brutality, something every day has tried to kill us. And yet we are still here and we are still moving forward. And in addition, these five composers that you talked about, um, one of them is still living. Uh, Dr. Indona um, Breen is still alive. Can you talk about what the interactions was like working with this mm -hmm. artist in creating the music? Sure. So I had the great pleasure of connecting with him, uh, uh, Dr. Bongani Nadana Breen, being a South African composer, when he was doing a Harvard Radcliffe Fellowship. So he had an entire year in Cambridge and 
uh, while the, the river is wide, separating Boston and Cambridge, we were able to find time and, and connect, talk about music, talk about his music specifically, and talk about the initiatives that he is doing with his music. Um, like everything else that has happened with Castle of Our Skins, it's been collaborative and an extension of ultimately a relationship. So mm -hmm. a relationship formed, ask a simple question, hey, can we program some of your music? And next thing you know, we have a portrait concert of his music at the Longy School of Music and a opportunity to record uh, his piano quintet on this album. That's wonderful. And chamber music, it's a field where we don't often get to see people of color in the forefront. Uh, how is Castle of Our Skins uh, working to change the tide in seeing more representation of composers and musicians of color? Sure, well, for composers, our entire mission is centered around black artistry. So all of the music that we program, again, over 500 years worth of contribution in, in this classical field, specifically African diasporic, we program. And we uh, sometimes do that in conjunction or to showcase a, a slightly different narrative or broader narrative of influence and um, uh, shared connections with composers who aren't um, African diasporic, but by far and large, the body of work that we present is all by African diasporic composers. Mm -hmm. The musicians on this album, all musicians of color, you have uh, Colombia represented, um, Mexico, Jamaica, Nigeria, Haiti, America. <laughs> so all of the musicians on this album are all people of color and we very much in the programming that we do showcase artists, visual artists, dancers, musicians, um, our historians are part of our collective as well too, spoken word artists as I already referenced, being people of color, mm -hmm. predominantly being uh, people from the African diaspora. And um, it's also really important for my, myself being a performer on this album, but also having education as a strong background for myself and also arts leadership that the organization from its founding has been led by two black people. Mm. And the, our board of staff is, our, our board of advisors predominantly black people, our staff predominantly black. Um, and who we have as being thought leaders and visionaries for the organization as well. Our teaching artists who go into schools and, and work with youth, also people of color, also predominantly African-American, mm. uh, and being able to showcase and share from a lived experience that kind of connectivity that you can't replace otherwise. Definitely not. Thank you for that. And what's next for Castle of Our Skins? How can our viewers listen to the new album and support the future work? Sure, so the new album is available on streaming platforms now, and you can find it on our website, which is castleskins.org. Um, in March, uh, just a few weeks from now, if people still have CD players, you can actually <laughs> buy the CD um, come, come March. Um, so our website is really a hub for, for that kind of information. On our website, you can also find upcoming events. So we have, as I said, education concert series is, is what we do. So we have a educational workshop at the Boston Children's Library that I will be leading on African-American and Caribbean folk songs and play songs. That's February 24th. Mm. And then um, some programming with our good friends at Project Step, which is a Black and Latino string training program here in town, March 4th, um, as well as March 12th at both Berkeley and the Rockport Music Center. 
All right, so some fabulous things on the horizon. Ashley Gordon, violist and artistic and executive director of Castle of Our Skins, thank you so much for joining us here in the studio today. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. And make sure to check out our BNN HD Xfinity Channel 1072. You can also hear us on the radio Fridays at 6.30 and 9.30 p.m. and Monday through Thursday at 7.30 and 9.30 p.m. For BNN News, I'm Faith Mathedon. I'll see you next Friday.